In this session, Dr. Angela Fernandez and Rita Gama are the moderators, and Dr. Sinir speaks about strabismus and CFEOM, Dr. Tuvenin speaks about infantile esotropia, Dr. Vélez speaks about accommodative esotropia, Dr. Merrill speaks about near-distance incomitance in esotropia, and Dr. Agarkar, who speaks about Duane's syndrome. We had a wonderful session about esotropia and strabismus syndromes, and uh, the presenters were Kamur Sinner from uh, Turkey, Dominique Tunubutuvenan from France, Frederico Vélez uh, from USA, Kimberly Merrill from USA, and Sumita Agarkar from India. And I thank you so much for uh, these beautiful presentations. Let's start with uh, uh, some of uh, the questions. Um, uh, uh, I would like to ask uh, Sinner, how do you make the calculations for uh, the surgery? When you said, you have uh, um, to make a recession of eight millimeters and five millimeters. How do you make those calculations? Because we know these muscles don't uh, act uh, like a normal muscle. How do you do that? Can you hear me? Oh, you have to unmute yourself. All right, can you hear me now? All right. Yes. Thank you for doing uh, I agree with you that it's not always possible to do the conventional prism cover tests uh, because of the obvious restriction and the aberrant innervation involved. The kind of deviation can change instantaneously. So the amount of deviation that is supposedly measured cannot be repeated at all times. So basically uh, the the Surgical dosage depends on the, uh, the traction test during the, during the surgery. Okay. Uh, what I can uh, tell you in order to simplify the surgical dosing is the, I, would, I would rather uh, target for the vertical deviation at the first session because okay. I'm pointing out with three different cases, the, the equilibrium between the restriction and the aberrant innervation can give you a, a surprising result in terms of horizontal deviation outcome. So the horizontal deviation can easily be measured and uh, conventionally corrected uh, at a later session. Okay. And do you recommend uh, MRI? like you did in the last case, you know, for most of the cases are only if you find it too abnormal, like uh, that case. I, I, I usually don't, don't order the MRI myself. These patients most, most of the time referred by others that have full thorough uh, investigation with neurology department and everyone else. The, the other case, the, the last case I've shown you is, definitely needed an MRI because I was unable to see the cornea. I, I, it was only the temporal part of the limbus was uh, I was able to see. So to, to, to be able to certain about the integrity of the eyeball itself, obviously the MRI was uh, very informative. Thank you. And uh, now, Dominique, uh, I would like to ask you, 
Uh, so what do you do uh, in the in cases of infantile isotropia uh, to prevent amblyopia? Do you do, do you do early surgery? Do you use botulinum toxin? Uh, what is uh, your procedure? Well, I don't think the, the treatment of the angle will prevent amblyopia. If there is a risk of amblyopia, you have to do alternate page patching. But uh, usually if you just uh, look for the children and uh, just verify that he's alternating, he has an alternating fixation, be it is EXO or ESO, it's more frequently ESO than evidently, but uh, then, there is, uh, then there is no uh, amblyopia. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you know that I, I don't practice a lot of uh, early surgery because I am not uh, sure that it is very, uh, there is not much advantage, advantages and you, you have to do more surgeries, I think. So uh, when, I, when I want to do something early, I do Botox and then I look for the children and if there is still an angle uh, later, I, I will do a easier surgery and the child will grow up with a lower angle i think it's mm -hmm. a it's a good way to to you understood into my talk that i i don't even think that it's possible to cure them so i don't think early surgery uh is uh, justified is, is that uh, clear? and what do, do you tell the parents i usually say when i make this kind of diagnose that this will take those uh, multiple surgeries, it will, it will be long and we'll be seeing each other uh, very often because I don't believe one surgery would be enough because after you make the horizontal alignment, then yes. the DVD comes up and everything. How do you approach these parents? Uh, usually I tell them that uh, first uh, the children, the child will see normally at the end, except if there is a large nystagmus and if there is a monophthalm uh, congenital problem. Uh, this is the most important. And then I tell them that at the end, uh, it should be cosmetically uh, uh, satisfying. I don't know how much surgery we will need. Usually it's... Uh, it's more than one, usually one, two, it depends because one for the horizontal part and then uh, the DVD may decompensate on the, when the child is a bit uh, older and then you do surgery of the DVD. But uh, usually it's just maybe, yes, 1.5 surgery, I think, to, uh, <laughs> At uh, least. I mean, I, in childhood, because uh, if I, there are not very, uh, it's difficult to know uh, really during the whole life, how much surgery you need to treat uh, uh, an infantile strabismus because it's going to, uh, as there is no fusion, there is nothing to keep the, uh, the, the alignment. So yeah. it, it, will, it will change with life, with presbyopia, with everything. So uh, uh, when we have a, a series, we don't count with the modification of the strabismus in adulthood. And mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, so there will be other surgeries probably during uh, adulthood. Uh, Sumita, we have a question for you from the audience. What is the dilution of Botox that you use? You have to unmute. Uh, I have no personal experience with Duance because in India we never get children that early. 
but I was quoting Dr. Senner here, and I think he's a part of the panel. He is best person to answer this question. Uh, Dr. Senna, would you, would you like to? Would you mind? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, this, this is a very interesting observation. Uh, that was a retrospective cohort. Uh, the reason why I tried the Botox, because we didn't have enough uh, convincing, stable alignment measurements at a, at a very young child, especially concerned with the head posture. So when we try to correct the head posture, trying to measure the primary and the secondary deviation, uh, it's not satisfying. So by the time uh, we can get reliable measurements, until the time we can get reliable measurements for a significant head turn, we, we chose to apply Botox injection. So that was the, the cohort uh, consisted of uh, children until two years of age. And I, I can tell you that after one and a half of years of age, Botox is not effective as a primary procedure. Botox is only effective as a secondary procedure. Um, as long as you do something for medial rectus recession or, or vertical recti transposition, Botox can be applied as, a, as an adjunct. But for a primary case, the kids younger or, uh, this, uh, or equal to or less than seven months of age. Surprisingly, in our cohort, every single one of them got rid of the head posture and primary position isotropia. So I beg you, please try to replicate this result so that I will be okay. assured that I'm not the only one. Uh, to to uh, to document this finding. I've used it. I've used it not uh, in children as as young as you were saying, and it always uh, it's, it's always reversible. But uh, sometimes to convince the parents that the the surgery will be will have a, a permanent effect when you know parents are not uh, keen to to do surgery. And in the meanwhile, uh, Angela Fernandez has joined us, our co-moderator. Welcome. Welcome, Angela. You've Thank you some, very much. Some, some beautiful presentations here. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Oh, very, so very I, nice. Yeah. I have a, a question for Kimberly. So Kimberly, uh, like you, you were saying uh, for the sagging eye, we know for surgery, we have to do the double dose for uh, muscle resection when uh, we try to correct these patients. What about prisms? Do you have the same feeling about doubling or is just a, a normal prism uh, adaptation like uh, any other patient? I think it's a normal prism adaptation like any patient, I, especially okay. with heavy eye. I think they don't do as well in prism, however, because those are kind of the patients that have the really high myopic spectacles. And they're not going to do well with prism long term because they tend to progress and they keep eating up that prism. So I think if they do want prism, it's only for a short period of time, and then they need to be the ones that go on for surgery. Okay. Uh, and why do you think the orthoptic training doesn't work? You've mentioned it. You know, there's really not great studies looking at divergence training for those patients out there. Um, when I do it with patients, they typically are motivated to do it because they want to either get rid of their diplopia and they'd want to avoid surgery, but they still just don't improve overall. And I think it's more of a muscle 
problem than it is a divergence ability problem. So I think that's why they don't get better with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, uh, we don't have uh, Frederico Velis uh, here, but uh, I would uh, ask the panel if uh, either you have uh, any experience with uh, the serial fixation surgery, like uh, some of the studies that Frederico mentioned uh, to treat the non-accommodative part of accommodative isotropia. Do you have any ex experience with that? Could you answer? Yes, may I? Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I used to, uh, to treat uh, isotropia. Um, my surgical protocol is, uh, is done under anesthesia. And when uh, the isotropia re, um, uh, disappears totally under anesthesia. I only do Faden operation, whatever the angle uh, when the child is awakened. So this is because, the, you know, as accommodative part of us, strabismus is a tonic part. Uh, when a strabismus disappears under anesthesia, it is also something that mm. is uh, an excess of tonus. And uh, Faden is very efficient on, uh, on that. So uh, I have published uh, several times uh, very good results treating uh, strabismus that disappear under anesthesia with Faden operation. The only problem with Faden operation is that uh, there is a fading effect <laughs> with time. And uh, so you have to replace the Faden operation uh, in about 15% of the cases, but it is possible to do it anyway. And the other thing I would like to say is that there is another technique that is developing and that is, I think, very interesting. It's the recess reject uh, surgery on the same muscle that has about the same effect as a uh, Faden operation. And for people who don't like Faden operation, it may be a, a good uh, alternative. I used it, I published a, a comparison of uh, Faden and recess reject on the same muscle with almost similar results. Thank you. Mm. You say it, people don't like it because it's very, it's more difficult to, to make than uh, R plus R now, yes. yes Just as everything, if you get used, I think it's no problem. Yeah, I agree. I also use it a lot and I have the same experience as you. And Angela, would you like to tell us? Has been oh, I, I think everything has been excellent. And uh, Federico Velis is just contact me. And um, he wants to do to ask a question, but he's he's just writing. So if you have another question before he can connect to me, I will be happy to transfer. Okay. Question. Sumita, you were saying yeah. something. No, no, I said yeah, I have also had very good experience with Scott's procedure, like this recess resect of the uh, medial rectus, and it is easier to do resurgeries on that rather than doing it on part. Well, I had. Uh, if you have done modern procedure, any re-surgery in that muscle becomes quite difficult because of the scarring and muscle being tamped down on the sclera. So if given a choice, I would like to do resurgery rather than modern. Yeah, everybody would feel like that. So uh, Dr. Sine, would you like uh, to tell us your experience? Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> question is about, <laughs> can you repeat the question? The posterior fixation uh, surgery for the non-accommodative part of a uh, commodative isotropia, like okay. Federico okay. was saying, uh, it looked like the, the results were I better. Have, I have total respect to my colleagues who are doing the posterior fixation sutures. 
I am over 30 years in this profession. I have never done a posterior fixation suture for these cases. And no, my patients are quite happy. So okay. I don't know how to remark about that. But I have a quick question about the pseudo-divergence insufficiency in young adults due to cell phones. We have published that on JPOS this year. Uh, how these younger adults or teenagers present themselves as divergence insufficiency. When you do the prism adaptation, uh, their near deviation turns out to be equal or a little bit larger than their distance. Well, how would you comment on that? Anyone? I don't have experience on that, I'm sorry. No. Kimberly? I, I, I don't like know. To, uh, so. You know, I, there's, um, I, I do prism adaptation on some of these patients that are teenagers that either, maybe it's because of their cell phone use, it's hard to tell, but it could be that they're broken down you know, microtropias as well. Um, and they kind of have that onset um, in the teenage years, but we've shown that, yeah, they, they do typically do that as they, their angle will build at near and you can also build it up almost to almost 10, 12 diopters more even at, at distance as well. And that's kind of the surgical angle that the surgeons I work with go for. Mm -hmm. And what about in uh, commutative, partially commutative isotropia? Uh, like the study that uh, Frederico Velez has shown us, uh, do you adapt prisms also in those situations? Yes, not, not as often. Um, I, I think the surgeons I work with don't like to use a prism adaptation in that scenario just because I think they'll still go for that larger angle. But it's those teenagers that kind of have that pattern that we're not really sure what they fit into um, that we do the prism adaptation on. Okay. So uh, Angela, do, do you have the question from uh, Federico? Oh, yes, yes um, he is saying that he combined the prism adaptation test with the maximum motor fusion test he, um, that will determine the prisms to adapt. See, he does one hour and operate for the adapter angle. Never aim for an overcorrection and always consider that reducing the amount of glasses to maintain the alignment is a poor result. Almost always requires a second surgery or cause amblyopia since those kids are at risk for amblyopia due to hyperopia. He prefer have a monofixation isotropia than a monofixational exotropia control with glasses reduction. And I, I agree with him. I prefer to, do, to have the isotropia than a control without glasses reduction because with the time, as, as the patient gets older, that hyperopia is going to become a problem in the adult. So um, I think uh, we, we're on time. And uh, I would like to thank you to all the presenters that animated this session. Thank you, Angela, for <laughs> showing up. And We'll continue with the uh, WSPOS Connect to the world and see you soon. Bye. Thank you, Rita. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. To summarize the session three in three tips. The first one is early Botox instead early surgery in infantile esotropia 
could be a first approach before surgery to prevent amblyopia. The second point is that forced duction test under anesthesia is useful to calculate the surgical amount in CCD's strabismus. And the last one is that the recess-reset procedure of the same muscle has the same effect that posterior fixation suture in esotropia with accommodative component.